0: One of the biggest questions people have wrestled with, regardless of the civilization they've lived in, regardless of the time period they've lived in, has been the question of what happens to me when I die? Now, having grown up a Christian, having grown up an evangelical Christian, I thought that there were essentially two options, two options for everybody heaven, hell eternal paradise in some sort of disembodied spiritual state, and the eternal conscious torment of the lake of fire, the abode of Satan. But where do these ideas come from? Are they biblical? So, in today's episode, we're going to explore some of the afterlife terminology found in the Bible. Back in 2011, a book was released by a popular evangelical author, a book that would generate quite a bit of controversy in the early days of Twitter, a book that generated even quite a bit of controversy on national news shows. This book stirred up debates among evangelicals about the afterlife, The book was entitled Love Winds and the author was Rob Bell. Now Rob Bell had generated quite a bit of a following as the pastor of the fairly large Mars Hills Mars Hill Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He had also written several other popular books including a book entitled Velvet Elvis and had a series of short I don't know if you call them devotional or theological. I'm not not really sure even now for the best title for these videos, the NUMA video series that had become quite popular again in in evangelical settings. And quite famously is when Rob Bell released this book. Again, in the early days of Twitter, John Piper tweeted, Farewell, Rob Bell, (laughs) a sort of sign of, um, I guess, a... An an evangelical uh, sort of excommunication from uh, from from Pastor John Piper here in in Minneapolis, and it was you know a very very controversial book. In it, Rob Bell and his typical typical I could say right brain sort of way of writing had posed quite a few questions that challenged the common evangelical notions of heaven and hell and salvation, and had subtly proposed for a, an acceptance of universalism, or to be more specific, Christian universalism, or what mo- some maybe had considered uh, a ultimate or ultimate reconciliation. Now, I had been a fan of Rob Bell's work up until this point. And so I picked up Love Wins and uh, I found it to be helpful in some ways and found it to, um, not to my liking in other ways. In <laughs> uh, the ways that it was helpful was that in Bell's sort of typical provocateur role, he had asked some questions that I had not given thought to. He had asked some questions that caused me to kind of reassess my own views on the afterlife and to really help me come face to face with the reality that I had not really given myself to understanding the biblical terminology and the complexities of biblical theology surrounding salvation and surrounding what happens to someone when they die. Now, simultaneously, I found the book to also be a bit frustrating because uh, Bell, and his, again, this probably isn't a strength of his, didn't really lay out any sort of systematic defense of any particular view, nor did he present any sort of clear survey of the options throughout history or the strengths and weaknesses of each of those positions, but that was okay, because I think the, the personality that I've been blessed or cursed with, depending on how you look at it, is one that says, oh, you know what, I've got these questions, and I'm going to go digging to find the answers. So in in one regard, I was fine to just be simply provoked by the questions, and then to go on a journey of seeking clarity about the answers. As I did this, one of the things that became immediately clear to me was that I actually didn't have a proper understanding of the biblical terminology to describe certain states of the afterlife as they are recorded throughout the scriptures. So I want to talk a bit about some of these afterlife terms. And if you are not familiar with this, perhaps the information I'm presenting to you today is new information and you go, whoa, where... Why have I not heard this before? Don't worry, you're not alone. I had gone probably, you know, by, by the time I had really done a deep dive into studying the sort of biblical theology of the afterlife, I had gone probably close to 29 years of church attendance and being in the church and probably close to a decade of vocational ministry already without ever hearing somebody clearly present what I'm going to present and, and share with you guys for your own evaluation. So don't worry about it. Oh, maybe for some of you, you do have some familiar, familiarity with this terminology. I think either way, it hopefully will be helpful to kind of break down each term that we see in the scriptures for the afterlife and, and, and try to understand them better in their historical biblical context. And Before we talk about the first term found in the Old Testament, I think it's important to lay out that a uh, biblical anthropology s- established in Genesis presents to the ancient Israelites a uh, humanity that is mortal. They are not inherently immortal. And we if this is established if we want to go back to the garden, this is established in Eden where there is not only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but there's also the tree of life and so when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden they're banished from the tree of life and if you remember back in Genesis what what God says is that if they are to take of this tree they would become like us and so in that way they would have been in some ways cursed to live in this sort of broken fallen state in an immortal state, and, you know, God is protecting them from that. It's also important to note that for the ancient Hebrew people, that matter and spirit was part of this sort of inseparable unity of reality, and that humans were animated with the very breath of God, but this couldn't be easily separated from their physical state. Now, this view evolves and changes over time, but this is really the initial perspective of the biblical authors, especially very early on in the Old Testament. Humans are mortal, and not only are they mortal, they are spiritual and physical, but this is very different than later notions of sort of an immortal soul, and we'll talk about that later. But we see this throughout Genesis as the initial characters in the story of Genesis, the initial people die in Genesis. So we see a list of them beginning in Genesis 5, right? They have this extended lifespan, but they just very clearly die. There's no um, sort of Star Wars-like force ghosts or anything like that. You know, For example, Genesis 5, altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. Seth lived 912 and he died. (laughs) You know, it seems like the the sort of reward in Genesis that people have for living a faithful life would be, an example of this would be Abraham in Genesis 25, uh, verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. The sort of reward someone might have very early on for uh, living a good and faithful life Life would be to gather, be gathered and remembered among their people. Humans have been blessed with the breath of God. It is the breath of God that animates them and gives them life. And when the breath goes out of them, that's the end of them. But there is early on some evidence that perhaps this wasn't a uniform view that everyone held to in the ancient Israelite worldview. Some had question as to whether or not this sort of breath of God that animates and gives life, the spirit could somehow live beyond their own physical death. We can see this in places like Ecclesiastes 3, where the author of Ecclesiastes says, starting in verse 19 in chapter 3, surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust, all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to earth. So here you can, you can see, you can hear this sort of tension in the debate, does the breath of the human end up going to the same place as the breath of the animal? Again, think of the breath as the, the 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 animating spirit, the the deposit of God's own breath that he puts into all creation. The author of Ecclesiastes seems to say, you know, it goes to the same place. And that was very much uh, a prevalent view among the the Hebrew people, among the Israelites in the Old Testament era. Now, one of the first terms you're going to see in the Old Testament for something that approximates comes close to what we might picture as an afterlife state is the term Sheol. Now, Sheol is not in any way, shape, or form for the Hebrew people, anything like the modern sort of Christian evangelical notions of heaven or hell. Sheol is simply the Hebrew word for the realm of the dead or the underworld. And, you know, most rabbinical scholars that I've come across suggest that when Sheol is used in the Old Testament, it's primarily a sort of metaphoric term for the grave. It's poetic language to denote the grave, just simply what happens to somebody when they die die. But there are some opinions, and there were probably even opinions as we see evidenced in the reflection of the author of Ecclesiastes, that perhaps there is some sort of physical state or non-physical state that the breath or the spirit of a human goes to after they die. And this would be very consistent with many of Israel's ancient Near Eastern neighbors who had a sort of underworld, that there was some sort of place, uh, post-mortem state of existence that one would somehow end up in after they passed on. But so far, up until the prophetic books, there is no hint at this place being a place of torment or reward. It simply is. And for some, it might just be a metaphoric term for the grave. And for others, there could be the potentiality that this term actually does denote some sort of spiritual state of existence. But if this is the case, that regardless of whether or not you've lived a life faithfully practicing the Torah, or whether you've been some sort of heathen child sacrificer in one of Israel's neighbors, that when you die, you both end up in the same state, brought about a problem. And it brought about a substantial problem for the Israelites as they headed into Babylonian captivity. You see, the promise early on in the covenant was that if you follow the covenant, your life will go well for you. If you don't follow the covenant until prescriptions, your life won't go well for you. And it, it seemed like a, a very, very clear uh, exchange system. But the wisdom literature of the Bible brings up some questions about this. The wisdom literature of the scriptures, books like Ecclesiastes, books like Job, bring up questions about whether or not Israel has properly properly understood the nature of their covenant and whether or not it is simply a matter of you do this and everything's going to go right for you. And if you don't do this, well, then things are going to go wrong for you. And the author of Ecclesiastes goes, wait guys, everything's meaningless. You know, <laughs> you know that was certainly his perspective as he was wrestling with how is it that it seems like so frequently that the righteous who live this life of perhaps Giving up of worldly pleasures and they give themselves to hard work that many of them die early or they die in catastrophic ways that the unrighteous don't and so if if the breath of the human, if the living spirit of the human ends up in the same state as the animal and it it's the same state whether or not you've been righteous or unrighteous, well what justice is there in that? And of course, Job, the story of Job brings up this question too, where Job is a righteous person. He is somebody that is a picture of someone following the covenant, and yet so much of his life goes poorly. I mean, God, what, what's the point of living well? What's the point of following? What's the point of of keeping your covenant if we can end up either in the same state as the unrighteous or perhaps even the unrighteous somehow enjoy a more comfortable, happy life in the here and now. And this is where the voice of some of the prophets come in. And these prophetic voices totally alter the conversation for the rest of not only Israel's history, but for what will become Christian history in places like Isaiah and Daniel There's a prophetic announcement about a future resurrection of the dead and its connection to a final judgment. And what these prophets declare is that, whoa, 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 hold on. What you do here does matter. Whether or not you are people of the covenant, whether or not you act in alignment with God's intentions for creation and reality, does make a difference even if in the here and now you don't presently experience the rewards completely of that difference, there will be a day in which your bodies, which again, it would have been unnatural for the, in the Hebrew sort of anthropology and cosmology, it would have been unnatural for a human physical body to exist in a state without its spirit, without its animating life force. So the dead Don't stay dead forever. And one day the dead are reanimated to stand before a judgment before God, at which that time a final reward and a final punishment will be distributed among the righteous and the unrighteous, the godly and the wicked. And so this is a revolutionary picture that Isaiah and Daniel present but this idea of sheol will evolve over the following centuries as israel post exile so again keep in mind most you know one of the most revolutionary and significant periods in israel's history it's a period that we call the second temple era in israel's history now keep in mind that in 586 bc nebuchadnezzar had sacked the city of jerusalem And the remaining uh, Israelites, the remaining Jewish people were hauled off into Babylonian captivity. And essentially what happens at that point is that Israel, the people of God, become property of one empire after another. From the Babylonians, then to the Persians, from the Persians, then to the Greeks, and then from the dissolution of the sort of Alexandrian Greek empire into what eventually becomes the Roman Empire by the time we get to the first century in the life of Jesus. But it's during this Greek period. It's during this intertestinal period. It's a time in which Israel and the Jewish people, many of which have resettled back in the lands of modern day Israel. They even have sort of rebuilt a temple. This isn't Herod's temple yet. It's a maybe a baby temple, (laughs) a a 1.5 temple for some. If you're a Catholic, it's the the time period that the book of Maccabees is written and the Maccabean Revolution. What, What happens during this time is that Jewish culture becomes influenced and begins to adapt to some of the Greek culture, the Hellenistic culture of the day. It would have been during this time that the Hebrew people would have encountered such philosophical ideas as the immortal soul and of ideas such as Hades and Tartarus. And this development is crucial to understanding afterlife terminology when we head into the New Testament period. We can see some of the shifts in thought and adaptations that happened during this period in what we might call intertestamental literature. There's books that were written between Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and the beginning of New, the New Testament, which is Matthew, but you know, chronologically, the first gospel that was written was probably Mark, and actually some of the epistles were written before that time. In the period in between, we have these very important, albeit non-inspired books— that help us understand some of the radical differences between the Old Testament and New Testament. For example, there are no mention of demons anywhere in the Old Testament or any sort of demonic exorcism. The closest thing resembling that might be when King Saul had a tormenting spirit that would get lifted off of him when David would play his harp and worship. But oddly enough, that spirit is attributed to being the work of Yahweh. Some of these intertestamental books include books of Enoch, Jubilees, the Apocalypse of Baruch, the Maccabees, and others. It was during this time that Sheol began to become synonymous with the Greek notion of Hades. Now, the Greeks are a very diverse group of thinkers, and it's very easy to hear people say, well, the Greeks thought this, and that can be a vast understatement of how diverse Greek thinking was on many subjects. But by and large, I think it would be fair to say that most Greeks believed in an immortal soul, an immaterial essence that one's body was the vessel for. In Platonism, for example, the the soul was part of the the immaterial spiritual mind, the the higher, more pure state of reality, while the physical world, the world of matter and the stuff of our bodies, was an inferior state of reality, a cruder state of reality. And, And some of these ideas clearly had an influence on early Jewish thought and even early Christian thought. That doesn't make it automatically wrong. In fact, as we can probably talk about some other time, throughout history, God has always communicated through the vehicles of culture to reveal truths about himself. There's no cultureless truth. Even language itself is a function of culture. So if God is going to communicate to humanity in any way, he's going to do it through the vehicle of culture. But the difficult work of trying to discern what sort of communication through the cultural lens comes from God and what sort of ideas are anti-God in one's culture is a very difficult process. I bring that up because I don't want you to, at this point, think, boy, this is this is a mess, like all of these ideas and influences coming from other things outside of God's revelation. And I'm, I might be suggesting something quite different is that these sorts of interactions that Israel has had with their neighbors is a part of God's progressing revelation. All right, so we can see that during this Second Temple period that the Hebrew idea of Sheol, the ancient Near Eastern idea of Sheol becomes synthesized with the the Greek underworld, the Greek Sheol. We can also see the development of another slightly less known but still important idea, I believe, in afterlife terminology, an idea of this place called the abyss that is found in the book of Enoch. And in Enoch, there is, uh, in First Enoch, we could say chapter 21, verse 1 through 10, there is a um, picture of the fallen angels who have rebelled against God being thrown into an abyss, an abyss that they are thrown into by one called the Son of Man. And this abyss appears to be some sort of state of permanent state of non-existence, which is really a unique idea, like a a finality to these spirit creatures. By the time we get to the first century and the days in which Jesus' uh, ministry took place, It would have been very common and popular for people to have an understanding of Sheol slash Hades now, which actually even split Hades into multiple layers. You now had different states of conscious being in the afterlife. We might say that Hades has a smoking and non-smoking section. We can find this in the intertestamental book book called the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, which definitely wasn't written by Zephaniah, but was written somewhere around 100 BC. And in Hades, there are these two sections, a place that would be for those that lived unrighteous, wicked lives, and a place of comfort and rest. And these two layers, these two abodes within Hades or again, Sheol is now Hades, were separ- separated by a river. And this river had an angel that acted as a sort of a underworld border patrol to make sure people from the smoking section were not sneaking into the non-smoking section. And interestingly enough, in this apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic book of Zephaniah, the Apocalypse of Zephaniah, Abraham actually serves an important role. Abraham acts as an intercessor between the comfortable place of paradise and the place of punishment in Hades. This comfortable side, this side of rest, would become known as Abraham's bosom. And if any of this sounds very familiar to you, well, it should. This is the exact imagery that Luke records Jesus using in Luke 16. In the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, I always used to be troubled by this parable, and maybe you were too as you read it. And some have even suggested it's not a parable, it was a true story, but I don't think the evidence is in the favor of people that defend this being some sort of historical retelling. There is a series of parables starting all the way back in Luke twelve verse sixteen that go all the way through this section of Luke, which make it to me really, really clear that this is a parable. But I've often found, when I was younger, this parable to be disconcerting, and it sort of upset my own theology of salvation or soteriology that that is very common in Protestant and evangelical circles. Because to me, it was brought up real questions about whether or not God was really just damning this rich man for his works, for his lack of works, I should say, and that somehow this poor man, Lazarus, was receiving eternal life just because he was poor. And and then there was even more to me at the time disconcerting idea that people could really talk back and forth between heaven and hell but to be clear guys this isn't a picture of heaven and hell this is a picture that is very consistent with what we found again in the apocalypse of zephaniah in what would have been kind of a, a perhaps a just a normal understanding of hades in the first century in the time luke is writing in the time especially jesus would have been originally delivering this message. Lazarus is not in heaven, and we will still yet define that term. He is not in the abode of God, the heavenly realm. And the rich man is not in some sort of state of final irrevocable punishment, in eternal conscious torment, in a lake of fire. He's simply in Hades, the section of Hades reserved for those who have lived wickedly. And this whole business of the rich man calling out to Lazarus and Lazarus being able to hear him and Abraham being present is all consistent with this first century picture that has been established by the intertestamental literature. Even the question of what sort of water is present in this state For when the rich man calls out in verse 24, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. Well, what water is he talking about? It's the river that separates Hades, the state of Hades that is reserved for the wicked, and the state of Hades called paradise or Abraham's bosom which seems to be a merciful concession in this afterlife for those who have not lived wickedly in the world now what about this business of the resurrection of the dead that the prophets isaiah and daniel had hinted at and what about this strange place called the abyss that those Demons that called themselves legion had pleaded with Christ not to be sent into. In the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Jesus uses a term for hell, or at least it was translated as hell in the King James, and thankfully more recent translations have corrected this and have given it the appropriate title, Hades. This is the one of the few times where Jesus, referring to some post-mortem or final state of punishment, doesn't use the Greek word Gehenna. When you read the Gospels in some English translation, you'll find that Jesus doesn't shy away from using the term hell. Consider several examples here in Matthew 5 alone. Matthew 5.22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. In verse 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And again, in verse 30, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In these cases, as well as the vast majority of other cases in the gospel where Jesus uses the word hell, at least as it's translated in our English, English Bibles, the vast majority of those cases do not use the word Hades, as, is, as was used in Luke chapter 16 in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The word used here in these examples I just cited in Matthew and in the vast majority of other cases is the word Gehenna. But what is Gehenna? Gehenna is simply the ancient Greek transliteration of the phrase Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom is the place where the idolatrous kings of Israel allowed for the burning of children on the idols of Molech as a sacrifice to this false god Molech. We see that recorded in Jeremiah 7. It later became the place where the bodies of the dead were brought and burned after Nebuchadnezzar sacked the city of Jerusalem. It's a horrific image in the minds of those first century Jewish listeners who have been well acquainted with this imagery. It's also a very clear and distinctly different picture than that of Hades, the realm of the dead. The connection would be very clear in the minds of the listeners. The Valley of Hinnom is a place of final judgment, a destructive end brought about by destructive behavior. In the days of kings and prophets, Israel had begun to practice the very horrific act that their neighbors had practiced, even those Canaanites. The seemingly unthinkable act of placing your own child in the hands of an idol whose metallic skin had been heated to the point of searing hot, scorching temperatures as the screams of one's own child were drowned out by the sound of chanting and beating drums as worship was offered up to Molech. For the sake of all human life, and in fact, all creations, such horrendous behavior must be stopped. Now, some have suggested that Jesus' intentional use of Gehenna and his announcements of prophetic judgment were primarily for that first century audience to to warn them of a, a similar sort of destruction that was coming, one quite similar to the destructive act of Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. And there is some validity to this because we know from history that essentially one biblical generation after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Romans come and sack Jerusalem in an eerily similar way to the Babylonian sacking of Jerusalem. In 70 AD, the Roman armies marched into Jerusalem and burned the temple and the entire city to the ground, expelling the remaining survivors into exile in an eerily similar way to the destruction of Jerusalem and the first exile of the Babylonian period. But there is evidence that this is not exclusively what Jesus had in mind. His prophetic warnings are both to the people of that day, warning them of the imminent judgment coming at the hands of the Romans, but it doesn't appear to be exclusively that. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells another parable of sheeps and goats, and at the end, he gives the warning that those who are the goats, those on his left, he will say, Matthew 25, verse 41, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the fire of final judgment, the final Gehenna. But Gehenna and Hades aren't the only words in the New Testament translated as hell. There's a third word. With an interesting connection to this judgment on the angels, the book of Enoch, and even Greek mythology. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter gives early Christians a warning about following false prophets and false teachers who teach destructive heresies. And in warning them not to follow these greedy teachers who attempt to exploit them, he compares the judgment that will come to them to be a judgment similar to what is to come to the angels. Verse four, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And then he goes on to compare this to other acts of judgment in the biblical history, the sparing of Noah when the ancient world was brought under a flood, to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire, and the rescuing of Lot. He then goes on to promise that those who hold fast will be spared just as, they, uh, as those men were from the destruction. But the interesting thing I want to highlight here is the word that Peter uses for hell in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to, and while the English translations say hell, the Greek word here is tartarus. If you know anything about Greek mythology, that word would sound familiar to you. Because in Greek mythology, Tartarus is the dungeon that the Titans are bound in. Some scholars have contended that Peter here is intentionally, he intentionally borrows from the Greek mythology and the story of the Titans and their judgment at the hands of the Olympian gods. To be an intentional correlation to the perhaps assumed backstory of the fallen angels that was part of Enoch's story, that intertestamental book, a book that's also quoted in the New Testament book of Jude. So, what's the connection between Tartarus and the other place in Greek mythology known as Hades? Well, Tartarus isn't so much a different place from Hades as much as it is a realm within Hades in Greek mythology. And this is where this all becomes really interesting with the, the biblical literature and where we may be able to piece together a sort of coherent vision of what the afterlife looked like to the world of those first century biblical authors, Jews, and Christians, So here's one possible way that we can kind of piece all this terminology together to make a a cohesive vision. Long ago, there was a fall of angels, a, a rebellion of these sort of spirit beings that had once dwelled in the abode of God. Those beings were banished to a state of consciousness or a spiritual state of being we could call Hades or Tartarus, a a temporary prison as they awaited final judgment. Their final judgment would be brought about by the Son of Man, the one whom demons trembled before and begged not to be thrown into the abyss, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. The final state or the final judgment for these beings would not be a continuation of their everlasting chains, but would be a final dissolution, uh, a destruction similar to that of being destroyed by fire, the dissolution of their very existence in the abyss. Now, for first century Jews and Christians, though, we can't say this with total certainty because even the Apostle Paul had very little to say about Gehenna or Hades or Tartarus, never using the terms at all. But still, nonetheless, there seems to be somewhat of a consensus that as the promise of Isaiah and Daniel would happen, that your life would actually matter, that whether or not you lived in accordance with God's functional picture of creation or not, that there would be a final day of judgment. Before Christ's death and resurrection, those who died and lived a unrighteous, exploitative life, a life served in allegiance of the devil and his angels would wait in that place of temporary punishment in Tartarus, in the layer of Hades reserved for the devil and his angels. The righteous who lived before Christ would also go to Hades, but in a section of comfort and rest, Abraham's bosom or paradise. This is why Jesus can tell the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23 that today he would be with him in paradise, but simultaneously be true that when he told Mary Magdalene he had not gone to his father yet, and when in Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4 there are hints that Christ descended into Hades, which has become part of the apostolic creed, that all of these pictures can work together harmoniously. Jesus declares that thief on the cross righteous, just like Lazarus was righteous. So when Jesus takes his final breath, the only truly perfectly righteous man passes into Hades. But the section of Hades that we might call paradise or Abraham's bosom, there he would see the thief on the cross. And this is where the Christian tradition of the harrowing of Hades, Christ's harrowing or haunting of Hades, what has been traditionally celebrated on the Saturday before Easter takes place. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. In Matthew's gospel, it's even recorded this strange scene in Matthew 27, 50-54, after a series of odd events that happened right after Jesus breathed his last breath, that dead saints were seen coming out of the grave and walking around Jerusalem. Was Christ in Hades setting free those who were once held under the somehow legal authority and power of the devil? Emerging victorious from the grave on that resurrection Sunday, Christ now holds the keys to death and Hades. This is what Jesus exclaims to John in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades So, post-resurrection, those united to Christ in this real spiritual, ontological union with Christ, when they die, they are made present with Christ, where Christ is, post-resurrection, post-ascension. But even this, as wonderful as it sounds, is not the final hope for those united to Christ. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3 that he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The Christian hope isn't some disembodied spiritual heaven. It's not living in the paradise of Hades or Abraham's bosom. No, the Christian hope is the resurrection of our bodies in a very real yet transformed physical world. It's a renewed body. A renewed creation but what about that final punishment that gehenna that fire well we'll have to do a more thorough exploration of this in another podcast but in short Christians have argued over the past two millennia whether that fire is a fire of eternal torment whether it's a fire Of consuming destruction or whether it's a purifying fire but we'll have to explore those options another time I want to conclude today by reading you the lyrics of an early Christian hymn in fact it's one of the very earliest found in a collection of Christian hymns dating all the way back to the second century in a hymn book entitled the odes of Solomon this is ode 42 Sheol saw me and was shattered, and death ejected me and many with me. I have been vinegar and bitterness to it. I went down with it as far as its depth. Then the feet and the head, it released, because it was not able to endure my face. And I made a congregation of living among his dead, and I spoke with them by living lips in order that my word may not be unprofitable. And those who had died ran towards me, and they cried out and said, Son of God, have pity on us, and deal with us according to your kindness, and bring us out from the bonds of darkness, and open for us the door by which we may come to you, for we perceive that our death does not touch you. May we also be saved with you because you are our Savior. Then I heard their voice and placed their faith in my heart. And I place my name upon their head, because they are free, and they are mine. Hallelujah. Well, we've reached the one-year anniversary since I first launched this podcast. This is uh, 26 episodes in a year. It's been wonderful conversations I've had with so many great guests. It's been wonderful to interact with you who have been listening thus far. I hope to keep this podcast going for as long as I have the grace to do so. So if you see this podcast as valuable, there are some ways you can support me in the work that I'm doing here. The first of all is to subscribe and to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. About 70% of people uh, download this podcast via that platform and leaving reviews. And even if it's just as simple as giving whatever star review you think this podcast deserves, the more reviews that 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 happens there, and subscriptions, even if you don't use that platform, the more likely are uh, more likely it is other people will find it and discover it too as they are searching for this sort of material. Another way you can support the work I'm doing is by just sharing the podcast with a friend. I don't do advertising other than just sharing when I've created something on social media. So uh, if we're going to be able to expand the conversation to others. It's going to happen through the work you do to share it with other people. And then finally, another way that you can support this podcast is become by becoming a financial contributor on Patreon. There are tiered rewards. In fact, maybe hopefully working on even doing some of the, the higher tier reward custom classes for people in the future. Uh, but there are lower lower dollar values that, that make, make a world of difference. To just even be able to support things like file hosting on the podcast, file hosting platform I use, to um, all sorts of things. So thank you for those that are supporting, and I would encourage you, you can find a link to all that stuff in the description of this podcast. Till next time.